The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. Today, I'm talking with the British visual artist Chantelle Martin. I first became obsessed with her bold black and white line drawings in the spring of 2020 during lockdown. I was staying with my in-laws then, weeks into the quietest days of the quarantine. Everything inside me and around me felt dormant. That's when I caught Chantelle's TED Talk. What if I told you that you could find a way from your heart to your hand to reconnect again? Chantelle made a case for how drawing can set you free. And me, I don't draw. But this talk, it lit me up. It made me want to make things. To be an artist is to live in a constant process of reinvention. It's risky. Just when you've mastered one format or captured an idea, you move to another. You have to trust yourself to exercise your creativity like it's a muscle without worry that it will fail you. This spring, for example, Chantelle will choreograph a ballet. My hope is that listening to Chantelle describe her evolution as an artist will inspire you to think more broadly about your own career journey. Where are you holding on to boxes that just don't serve you? Where can you express yourself more fully? Here's Chantelle. I often tell this story of, you know, um, telling my teacher, you know, I, I think I'd like to go to art school. And, you know, my teacher's telling me, well, you know, like, don't do that. You can't do that. But, you know, I, I think back about that. When you're a child in an environment when no one is telling you what you can do, you're often surrounded by adults or people or a society that's telling you what you can't do. And, you know, sometimes that is the permission that you need is the the calms. And, you know, I think for many years I was like, you know, angry at this teacher was like, who told me like, don't apply for art school because you won't get in. He was being realistic. You know, I was angry at this guy for a long time, but then I really started to reflect back and was like, wow, he was being really realistic because no one like me in his experience of being a teacher at that school in that area with children like myself have ever gone to art school. So shouldn't he be doing the most responsible thing as a teacher and guiding students into areas that are realistic for them, for their future? I think it's such a privilege that, you know, we take for granted in a sense where we tell children, like, what do you want to be? And we ask them to dream big, but that isn't for everyone. You know, you have many, many children out there who don't have anyone in their lives or haven't seen anyone in their lives go beyond and do things outside of that social, structural, economical system. Now, looking back, I was like, oh, he was just being realistic and yeah. supportive in his own way, you know? Well, it strikes me as you say that. I think about this message that is, I think, American in its orientation, although you can tell me if I'm wrong about that. And I think certainly class-based. Mm -hmm. um, that uh, you should develop a career doing something that you love. And you can do that. So think about what you love and go and do that. I find it to be, it, it's just my opinion, that I, I think that that's actually totally flawed reasoning on so many levels. For one, it doesn't really reflect the economic reality for so many 
people. But beyond that, this idea that your economic prospects should be tied to your passions is one that doesn't work out for most people, especially because our passions change, right? We come into our adulthood thinking we want to do something. And for some people, they you know, become a doctor and that lights them up their entire career. But for many, many more people, what they think that they want to do changes over the course of their adulthood. And if they're lucky, they've landed in a career that's flexible and allows them to change. But many people don't. Just reflecting on on hearing you say, like, okay, well, this person was actually being realistic. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And, you know, like, as you said, it's a very classist question. And also, I think the question itself is flawed in the sense of not really helping society meet its full potential. And what I mean by that is, you know, imagine if we ask children, who are you? versus what do you want to be? You know, as as a society, as as people, as grown-ups, we don't have the vocabulary or the verbiage or the emotions to describe who we are as people. Because from such a young age, we're taught that it's important to be this and to be that and to do this and to own this and to own that. Instead of asking children, who are you? Like, who are you at the core? Who are you at the spirit? Like, who are you fundamentally as a human being? And I think if we pivot that question to children, they're so creative that they would actually come up with the vocabulary that we need to describe ourselves at the core. And I think the result of that or the default of that is that that could pivot all of our real priorities in life. Because once we can articulate and describe who we are, that really puts things into perspectives. And now it's not about owning things or trying to be this or trying to be that. It's trying to express ourselves and using that as a, as a tool or a, a, a guiding force to then live the rest of our lives. Yes, just yes on every level, Chantelle. We can be done with our conversation right now because I'd like that to be the takeaway. But let's talk about how you got there. How did you get to the point where now you reflect back and you say, this, this, this is what we should be going after? You know, I think it's perspective. You know, we all live very different lives. We've all had different experiences. I've had an interest in perspective because, you know, I grew up in Southeast London. I was born in 1980. I am a biracial black child that was has a white mother and two white stepdads. I don't know my real dad. And then I grew up in a part of Southeast London, which at that time was extremely racist, very white and working class, very homophobic, quite poor. And I think as a child, I've always been an observer um, of people's reactions. And I've always like liked to ask why, you know, I'm the eldest of six kids. I'm the quietest child in our household growing up. And I just watched everything. And I watched people's interactions and I watched how people said things or how they moved around or how they carried themselves and how they speak to others. And, you know, I think I got to where I am today, A, because I've always been an outsider and that outsiderness has allowed me to be an observer of space and people and interactions. And I've always just had this natural curiosity to observe and watch and to question and then to think about that. And I think, you know, just that's something people have been doing for a long time, you know, observing things and then questioning it and thinking about it and kind of responding to it 
in some form of way. And I think that kind of has been the basis of myself as an artist and how I've got to be where I am. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's worth mentioning that little bit of a background because it does give me a little bit of an interesting perspective, you know, growing up in like the household that I did and then walking outside of that house and being treated in a very different way, then going to art school and being treated in a very different way, then going to Japan and being treated a different way, then coming to America. And, and so you're basically the same person, but the way that you interact and get treated, it, it changes based on people's own baggage and their own experience and 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 you know everything else that they're carrying as well at what point did you begin to step into your your sense of self as an artist and and what did that feel like i don't even know if i'm there yet i think it's a conversation with yourself that's always evolving you know i went to art school did i ever feel like an artist at art school no i felt like you know i was just following and putting one foot in front of the other that led me there um, I never felt like an artist then, you know, even now, like when I think about what an artist is, I still kind of, yes, I make art and I question things and I put work out there in the world and I make a living for it and I do shows. Um, but I think it's always like a, uh, a continuous evolution of self. Um, you know, so I don't know to answer your question. It's like, it's always evolving. It's always changing yes, I'm an artist. Do I often feel like an artist? No, because I think there's still so much work to be done. Well, that's that's interesting. I want to peel that back a little bit because what does it mean to feel like an artist? Like what, And, and how is that tied to economic reward, Chantal? Because yeah. you're a working artist. There, there are many people who identify as artists in the world. There are many people who create art but shirk from the word artist in the world. There are very few people who pay their mortgage based on their work in the world. Like, what has that experience been like for you? I didn't really call myself an artist until there was a few years of me actually being able to financially take care of myself by making art and putting that out there in the world. And and for me, you know, initially it was tied to this like financial milestone of not having to do anything else. Therefore, I am an artist because this is my employment and my job and my income but I think you know artists on is also like for me it's like on a spiritual level it's like being completely true to yourself a lot of words come with a lot of baggage and I think you know especially now everyone says yeah I'm an artist and then you're like well show me what you've done and then they're like well I haven't done anything yet but I will <laughs> or I'm working on it or I'm thinking about it. And so I think it's different for all of us. You know, I'm I've always been pretty tough on myself. So I'm always trying to expand what an artist is. You know, I know that words come with baggage and and you know boxes. And so if I if I commit to putting myself in an artist box, what am I limiting myself to? And so I'm always trying to expand that box. And so, you know, for example, earlier this year, I thought, well, if I look back as my career as an artist, if I'm going to call myself that, that whole time I've been writing, I've been thinking, I've been questioning, you know, what about if I use the word philosopher? You know, in a way I've been an intuitive philosopher and questioning and thinking and, and, and asking these questions of people when observing things. Um, but isn't that word philosopher reserved for a few? And, you know, this kind of, we have this, um, idea of a philosopher being someone that's like very educated and that can regurgitate 
the words of others. And, and, and then I was like, no, like it can be something else. And we live in a modern day society where we can think of intuitive philosophy as something else. And, and so I am trying to expand these boxes because then I'm able to expand my thinking. I'm able to expand my medium. I'm able to expand the industries that I work in. And so I'm trying to like subtract that in a way and expand that. So I'm able to expand as, as a creative human as well. I so appreciate that you frame it that way, Chantelle, because I think that one challenge of being economically successful with anything that you create, whether it's art or, I mean, in my case, I was a technology journalist for 20 years. Day that you decide to create or be something else, you're taking a chance. You're taking mm -hmm. a chance that the self-reinforcing market may or may not reward it. And I think it gets harder and harder to take that chance as we grow. And I'm curious if you think about that with your own work. If you look back through my career, and that's like the great thing of, of being a working creative or journalist or whatever, whatever industry you're coming from, is that you have that power of reflection where you can look back over time to see the common themes and threads and thoughts. And, and for me, when I look back, it's all taking a risk. I love a challenge. I love to walk into a space that is uncertain and unknown. You know, I love to walk out on a stage, for example, in front of a few thousand people. And that's when I'm most, I'm super focused and calm and confident. Or I love to- Wait, you, you love doing that, Chantal? Yeah, because like off stage, I'm a little bit shy, awkward in my own heads, in my own thoughts. But the, on on the stage, like there's something about that pressure that like really focuses me. Or like, you know, more recently, you know, being invited to choreograph my first ballet, you know, at like a very famous ballet company that's been doing all these incredible recent work. And then they're like, okay, now walk into a room of dancers and principal dancers and tell them what to do. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, Chantel will take us to the ballet. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. Chantel's been involved in some out-of-the-box collaborations. 
Like a few years ago, she did a concert projection performance on the beach in Miami for Art Basel with Kendrick Lamar. Or this spring, she's doing the most amazing collaborative work with the Boston Ballet. A few years ago, I, I did um, a collaboration with the New York City Ballet for their artist series. So I think I was the seventh artist to do that. And as a part, you know, just to backtrack a little bit, as a part of that project, I interviewed probably close to 20 dancers before I even started the artwork for that project. And I sat them down and I asked, who are you? And where does the dance begin? And where do you end? And how did you get here? And, you know, that sense of curiosity of knowing, wanting to know more about them. And then um, the next day and some of that day, that first day, I did drawing workshops with them. So with pen and paper, I got them to draw and I got them to feel what it is like to make a line with a pen and paper with your hand or even without a pen and drawing with your finger, just to kind of bring that connection in, in that we are doing the same thing. I'm creating lines and you're creating lines. And those lines are either seen or left behind with a mark or they're created and moved with a body and left behind in a different way. And so I think that was a really nice way of just kind of setting some context and background and some shared love of line. And then from there, for me, it was almost like recreating a drawing, but with a different medium. So in this particular, um, you know, piece that I'm creating, you know, I think there's a video that's on my Instagram that speaks a little bit about this where, you know, I, I talk about collecting lots of adjectives and lots of words and then having the, you know, the dancers kind of move to these words and kind of really feel them. Or I would, you know, have them watch videos of children flying kites. And, you know, so my, my ballet is called Kites. And it's this idea of like metaphorically and physically, like kites are uplifting, they're positive. You know, even if you haven't flown one, you maybe have that shared memory of like a child running with a kite and, and what that feels like. And in a way, that's how I create my drawings. My drawings are a collection of recurring lines and characters and words. And for the ballet, I collected recurring lines and patterns, but they were just with um, the dancers' bodies in space. And then it was a matter of pulling those all together and then trying to tell this story that I'm telling of a kite that kind of wakes up at the beginning of the day and goes on this journey and finds a community and then finds self. Listening to you talk about that, Chantelle, it makes me want to ask you how you think about purpose in your own life, whether you think about purpose. Yeah, you know, I think about these things all the time. Um, you know, I, I have a big tattoo on my arm that says, why? And I have another one that says think, and I have another one that says we, or I have a tattoo that says you and me, or a tattoo that says here and now. And I think, you know, over the years, I've been collecting these words uh, because I'm searching for purpose and trying to search for the reasons of being and creating. And, you know, I think the choice of being an artist is a very interesting one when it comes to purpose, because essentially we make things. We don't really know why we're making them. Most of the time we make them because we feel like we have to. And then at some point we die, <laughs> you know? And, and so there's that sense of like, you're leaving these things that you've made and created behind uh, and then you move on. And often I get caught up in these cycles of asking myself, what's the point? And, you know, I think often when I get to that place of when I'm asking myself, what's the point, I come back to a few things. And those few things that I come back to are the point or the purpose is to make 
and to share. The point and the purpose is to create connections and experiences. The point and the purpose is to inspire myself and others for freedom of creation. And the point and purpose is to move from one place to another and to create along that way and just enjoy the process of how I get there. That's beautiful. You know, it makes me think, not surprisingly, and I feel a little um, self-indulgent saying this, but it makes me think about my own writing and how, for me, and you know, I've done long-form magazine work my entire career, and with a long-form magazine article, you work on it for a couple months, maybe three months if you're lucky, and then you finish it. And then Mm. it goes away. And then maybe two months later, everybody else in the world interacts with it. And by the time you get to that place, the place where the rest of the world is interacting with it, maybe in your case, it's the place where everybody is sitting in the audience watching in Boston at the Opera House next month. Um, For me, at least, I'm aware that that's not my favorite part. It's almost like it should be my favorite part because it's the part that everybody notices. But the work, the reason, the why is the the toiling away, the process, the creation, the being in community with people around the ideas, like that's everything. And by the time it gets to the output, I'm on to the next thing that I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious how you think about that. You know, I think about that quite similarly. And I think that's why for me, the process is the work and the output. You know, a lot of the work that I create is by default a performance, even though I'm not a performance artist, but I have learned to really enjoy and want to share the process of creation. So if I'm creating a drawing, there's most likely I'll create an audience to see that and share in the process. Or, you know, if you're doing a talk, that talk, a lot of the time I'm not planning the talk because I wouldn't remember what I planned if I did it. So it's improvised, it's spontaneous. And so I've managed to create an infrastructure for myself as an artist that the process is the most important part of the work. And I think that's like where the magic happens. That's where you're, you're, you're most honest. That's where you get to show that even mistakes aren't mistakes because you get to enjoy them and it creates for unique moments. And then the result is just, uh, it's a default. It's a factor. It's, it's not the work. Beautifully put. I guess I'd just ask like, if there's anything you wanted to leave our listeners with as they think about their own journeys, their own sense of creativity, which I think all of our listeners would identify with, even if they're an insurance ingester by trade. Yeah, you know, I, I think, as I like to say, is that, you know, the more people that we have picking up a pen and drawing, the better. Uh, and, you know, people might be thinking to themselves, well, I can't draw. And I'm like, of course you can, because you did it as a child. And anything that you did as a child, you can probably do as an adult. I would just encourage everyone to find that creative outlet in whatever you do and it, and um, embrace it. Yeah, you know, I think we all kind of live in a in a tough world at the moment. And, you know, we need these creative, positive outlets. Um and if we find them, the world's going to be in a much better, better place. That was Chantel Martin, artist, philosopher, visionary, and so much more. You can learn more about Chantel's work at chantelmartin.art. And this week on Office Hours, we're going to talk creativity. Tell us what creative outlet you had as a child but no longer cultivate. Or maybe you're still cultivating it. We want to hear about that too. You can find us on the LinkedIn news page or email us for a link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. And as always, if you like the show, please rate and review us. It really does help us so much. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. 
The show is produced by Taisha Henry with help from Wesley Wingo. You can find us on the LinkedIn news page or email us for a link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. And as always, if you like the show, please rate and review us. It really does help us so much. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. The show is produced by Taisha Henry with help from Wesley Wingo. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florence Oriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is our technical director. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor teach us to draw. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And as always, Sarah Storm remains our fairy godmother. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday, and thanks for listening. Where are you coming to me from? Are you in New uh, York I'm somewhere in, right now? I'm in sunny LA. I'm in sunny in New York, where it's 20 degrees warmer than it has been for the last three weeks. So Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be there this weekend, so I hope it stays that way for me. Don't get your hopes up. <laughs>